It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. A 49-year-old inmate became the first American prisoner to die of the coronavirus, setting off alarm bells for jails and prisons nationwide. Louisiana, which has seen a spike in COVID-19 cases spanning the state, is one of several that has released nonviolent offenders to ease crowding and it is hoped prevent transmission of the virus. New York City is doing the same. Officials in America's biggest city say stopping the spread of the coronavirus in jails is an urgent priority. More than 200 inmates and corrections workers have tested positive for the virus, prompting the mayor to order hundreds of inmates released. The individuals uh, convicted of offenses such as misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. So when we looked at that category of people, Uh, There's over 500 uh, inmates in that category. In Chicago, judges are deciding on a case-by-case basis whether hundreds of inmates can be released. But in politically conservative Texas, the governor is halting such releases amid pushback from the public and some authorities. I've heard from law enforcement officials as well as citizens alike who have raised concerns about releases that have already taken place or anticipated releases that could take place of dangerous criminals in jail because of COVID-19. U.S. Attorney General William Barr directed the Federal Bureau of Prisons to move sick and elderly inmates to home confinement. Non-governmental organizations want other inmate groups released. To drastically reduce prison populations so physical distancing becomes possible, they should also consider releasing low-risk offenders. Imprisonment should be a measure of last resort particularly during this crisis. The head of the U.S. Federal Prisons Workers Union wants the government to stop all inmate movements for at least 21 days. The Bureau of Prisons says it will force all new inmates into 14-day quarantines. So far, confirmed COVID-19 cases among federal prison inmates and staff, numbers in the dozens. Chris Simpkins, VOA News, Washington. message of justice all around the world. Tonight, troubling information regarding COVID-19 in America's prisons. And I'll tell you what, what's happening is inhumane. We're going to dig into that tonight. And I call it cruel and unusual punishment as the response to inmates in their lives, no doubt, is cruel and unusual. We're going to deal with that tonight. This is AJC Radio, COVID-19, shaking the nation's prisons and jails. We take off right now. (laughs) 
And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Sampson Riddle, William Williams, Quentin Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and Cliff Stewart, uh, and the entire AJC radio team tonight. This is, ladies and gentlemen, call anybody you know to tune in to this show tonight, because what you're going to learn tonight is that lives, prison lives do not matter. Inmates' lives do not matter, and the lack of due diligence done on the, uh, the part of federal prisons, state prisons, st- uh, county jails, and namely the Bureau of Prisons, who is supposed to oversee the operation of federal institutions, they all have failed. Without any regard for human life, they continue to let these folks die. And last I learned and last I looked, any sentence in the state or federal penitentiary, prison, did not come with the death sentence. We're going to, hear, we're going to learn more about that. People who were in county jail or prison for two years, for four years, but COVID shook the entire foundation of the prisons. And for one reason, those in authority failed to do their job, failed to respond because guess what? The attitude is inmates' lives do not matter, whether you be in county jail or you're in state or federal prison. We're going to visit that. We're very fortunate tonight out of the young men that I just named off, uh, known as the IRP5, who saw firsthand some of the things going on regarding COVID uh, before they were actually given liberty. David, how important is this that we get on in this conversation? Uh, it is maddening what we have seen and cruel uh, with the lives and the body bags filling up day after day because guess what? Nobody cares. Your thoughts? Yeah, truly nobody cares. Uh, people have no idea what goes on behind the walls uh, in prison. Everybody's out there talking about what's going on. They're talking about the medical care. Uh, the prisons put up a good front in many cases about that uh, that you get good medical care and all this other that stuff is simply not true. Uh, and the problem actually runs deeper than that because there's a stigma that goes with anybody who has a felony or an inmate, uh, the public at large really doesn't care what goes on in prison. So, uh, and you can see that in, in many different areas, the way they treat them coming out of prison. It's just the way it is. So people need to, America needs to wake up, come out, come out of their delusional state and realize that there's a problem in this country. And like you said, it's going to be, it's going to be good to dive into what we saw uh, as far as the COVID-19 protocols that were, that were not followed uh, at the prison. Yeah. And, and you find out that, uh, even when authority was given by the Department of Justice, uh, Attorney General Barr, uh, prior to, the, of course, in the former administration, made it clear that any federal inmates that qualified for home confinement could, were, were to be released immediately. Those actions didn't happen. It was always a delay. Something, well, we're, we're trying, and I heard somebody say at the BOP spokesman said, well, we're overwhelmed. We got so many. We're doing it. We're getting them out as quick as possible. You're talking about a pandemic that is killing people across the country, and you're moving slow motion and doesn't seem to care. My question in regards to that is why, then, are you at your job? Why are you in a big building in Washington, D.C., Mr. Director or Ms. Director, whoever they keep switching for intern uh, uh, until they find somebody permanent? People are dying. What do we do about that? We have a, we have a problem. I mean, we got a big one. Going to be joining us tonight to have this discussion with us is Daniel Moritz Repson. 
He is a freelance journalist. He's going to be joining us here at 6.30, uh, 8.30 Eastern Time. Uh, and he's going to give some, some insight of what's going on with the criminal justice system with COVID. COVID was a deadly and is a deadly killer. And how you want to say, well, the public needs to practice social distancing, we got some information you're going to hear tonight is that is absolutely absurd. It is impossible. County jails, impossible to even do social distancing. And the germs and the sickness and the failure of medical care in the prison prior to a pandemic failed. So what makes anybody think that the system is going to do anything any different? I can tell you right now, they are not. And we're also going to be joined uh, at uh, 645, 845 Eastern Time, Nicole Porter. She's an ad- she's director of advocacy at the Sentencing Project. She's going to chime in on this conversation today as well, including all of us. Pull up a chair, folks. Get comfortable. This information, though disturbing, is necessary that we put it out there because I'll tell you what, the painted pictures that you'll see at websites and the care and concern for your loved one who is incarcerated, is a complete fabrication. It is a joke. What goes on behind the wall is, I'm telling you, we're going to expose it, and COVID-19 is going to help us do just that. Feel free to dial into the show tonight, folks. We'd love to hear from you, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. And on the other side of this break, we dive into this conversation and have, have true dialogue of exactly what's going on. This is AJC Radio bringing the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. one 855 529 4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught, you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. 
We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect me. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crime. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip-up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to reform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. As we, as preview moments ago, the COVID-19 pandemic is one of the most deadliest pandemics that we've seen in quite some time. But the question tonight is, why are inmates in county jails and federal prisoners, state uh, prisons, are being ignored, which I believe deliberately, because of their social status as being an inmate, a convicted uh, felon in, in a lot of cases, convicted of some type of a crime. And I'm sure that their particular sentencing did not come to or have the death sentence in its, uh, in its uh, sentencing. But these people that are dying in county jails, in prisons, and prisoners are stacked up in these penitentiaries. The problem is local and federal governments are failing to act. And I'm telling you, people are dying. That The report is, and we're going to get into all of that tonight, the report of the people that even the loved ones 
of inmates that have died of COVID are having a hard time even finding out that their loved one has passed away. There's no type of due diligence to say, look, this guy is sick. We need to get him home. A lot of these people in county jails, guess what? Now, we don't do that to convicted people. In county jail, as people await for their day in court to fight an accusation, many of them innocent, are left in county jails to die. They, they haven't even been convicted of anything at this point. The question is like, why is that? Because the presumption of innocence, which is a joke, is, is exactly that. Why am I stacked up in a county jail with other people? And I found out through my research of this show, they were even stacking inmates in solitary confinement together during COVID, which they're locked down in solitary confinement or what they call as the whole, at least 22, if not 23 hours a day. So if somebody's getting sick, I'm stuck in there. That is, that is a failure of the system. Dave Zappolo, your thoughts? Well, when you look at what was going on when we were in prison, when we were getting ready to get out, they put us in quarantine for 14 days. But we were in quarantine with somebody that we had never even made, possibly met before. We were two people to a cell, and they were saying that they were trying to uh, protect the community. There's nothing about protecting the community or protecting the inmates. They were, they were doing it so it looked like they did something good. And you don't see that in prison. They're not doing anything good ever. When they said that they were protecting the inmates at the camp, what they did is they locked 36 people in a range and said, okay, guys, you're social distancing. You're not social distancing. You got two people to a cube and 36 people in a range. And you can't stay away from the other inmates. They wouldn't even let them go outside where you could actually social distance. Yes. And that's, that's just unheard of to me. And it's because a culture has been built here that if you're locked up, well, whatever happens to you happens. What about the mothers, the fathers, the sisters, the brothers? Looking for bodies. Hey, man, I haven't heard from my family in a month. But just calls, received phone calls, letters. I can't find my loved one. No indication. And then taking phone privileges and, and, and played with that. That is unheard of. I want to play this clip for you. I'm going to get your thoughts, and shortly we're going to bring our first guest on. Play the clip. Now with a closer look at one of the most dangerous yet underreported aspects of this pandemic, the rapid spread of COVID-19 in prisons. This New York Times headline captures the dilemma, jails are petri dishes. Some states have taken steps on their own to mitigate the risks. Late Friday, Attorney General Barr called for the transfer of inmates most vulnerable to home confinement, beginning with federal affiliates in Ohio, Connecticut, and Louisiana, where five inmates have already died from the virus. And now there are new cries for help from one of the nation's most overcrowded state prison systems. ABC News has obtained exclusive video from inside the Alabama prisons. Take a look. It's going to be a mass grave site up in these prisons. This is a dormitory. We're stupid crowded, we super crowded. Now, as you see, the folk walking down the aisle and they got to turn it. See, that aisle is too small. It is way, way too small. These are the beds, they right beside each other, and this is the space. 
Spit your arms out again. That's how, that's how close we are. See, these are the people that they should be letting go due to the coronavirus. What in the world can this man do? The shrinks are very outdated. We cannot wash our hands simultaneously at the same time, you know? My thing to the outside world is help. Help. Help for the overcrowding, help for sanitary uh, purposes, help for um, a release mechanism. We need to release some of these people. We need help. Dramatic video there. We reached out to the Alabama Department of Corrections. They acknowledged that current conditions mean they can't enforce social distancing, adding that the department is working to do everything in our power to mitigate the spread of the virus. As of Friday, no Alabama prisoner had tested positive. Uh, a couple of AOs have prison con workers have confirmed positive. And we're joined now by Dr. Homer Venters, president of Community-Oriented Correctional Health Services, former chief medical officer for the New York City jail system. Topeka Sam, a former inmate who spent three years in prison for a nonviolent drug offense, now a criminal justice reform advocate, co-founder of New Yorkers United for Justice, and Bristol County Sheriff Thomas Hopshin. He oversees five facilities in Bristol County, Massachusetts. Thank you all for joining us this morning. And, and Dr. Venters, let me just begin with you. Just give us a sense of the scope of this public health crisis in Americans' prisons right now. Sure, and good morning. We have 5,000 county jails and state and federal prisons and probably another 2,000 juvenile detention centers and ICE detention centers. These places are almost perfectly designed and run in a way to promote the spread of this virus throughout these institutions, affecting not only the people who are held there, but the staff. We saw it in New York City. In just a couple of weeks, we went from two cases to 38 cases to now over 500 cases split evenly between staff and detained people. And so the danger here is that we're not only uh, really going to see the explosion of cases among people who are detained and the people who work there, this is going to drive the entire epidemic curve for this nation up just when we're trying to flatten it. And Topeka, Sam, you've lived inside some of those facilities. Give us a sense of how difficult it is, we saw some of it in that video right there, to accomplish social distancing inside these prisons. Absolutely, George, there is no such thing as social distancing inside of prisons. As you saw, um, the conditions are no different than when I was incarcerated in five different prisons around this country, in federal prison and county jails. Um, that video was heartbreaking. You said it best first, that this is a public health issue. Mass incarceration is a public health issue. And now that this outbreak has happened, I'm happy that we're taking a look at prisons um, in a different way and the people that are actually in them. Unfortunately, as you see, there's no way to properly be six feet apart. There's no way to properly um, wash your hands. There's not enough soap. They can't use hand sanitizer because of alcohol products that are in them and they're considered contraband. Um, you have people, that was an open door. But where I was, there were cells. And in those cells, we were locked in sometimes up to 21 hours a day. Um, I just received a call from Michelle West, who's in federal prison. And she actually is in Dublin, California, where they are locking the women in for five days out of seven days. So they're only allowed out of their cell 
for two days a week, Tuesdays and Fridays for 15 minutes a day to take showers, make phone calls, or just get some fresh air. This has to stop. We have to begin to release our people from prison because not only is it the incarcerated population that's impacted, it's the officers, it's the chaplains, it's the workers who come home back into the community and then spread the disease even further within our community into their own children. And Sheriff Hodgson, the, the question is, how do you balance those very real public health and safety concerns against the safety risks of releasing too many prisoners? Well, good morning, George. That's a great point. Uh, look, it's all about your protocols in the prisons and how well your staff are prepared. Uh, we've been de dealing with H1N1 prior to this, SARS, all of those uh, uh, viruses. It's all about the control you have in your prisons. Now, if you let people out into the streets, 80% of our population have drug-related issues. They have compromised immune systems. So you let them out into the community, they're a higher risk, become carriers, they're going to start feeding their addiction. They have no support to get medications. They're going to uh, have no rehabilitative programs out there. And they're gonna be wandering into stores, uh, you know, under the influence of drugs. Not to mention the fact that when they overdose, if some of them do, you have the emergency medical people having to respond. Uh, and then we've been worried about ingesting a particle of, of uh, fentanyl, Never mind the exposure to COVID-19, which will happen. The other thing is these people have nowhere to go. You know, many of them are gonna go stay in apartments with three, four, sometimes five families in a five room apartment. Uh, I can't think of anything more dangerous. If we're talking about distancing, I can't think of anything that would be more distancing than have the prisoners in the jails, protecting the people on the outside from adding more carriers and more exposure. We have the protocols in place. We have no COVID-19 people. We've been at this for a month. Many of the, most of the prisons, I think, except for uh, one facility in the state and uh, Essex County, uh, I mean, excuse me, Middlesex County had two prisoners. Other than that, there are no prisoners, uh, as far as we know, in our county systems. This is such a difficult dilemma. I wish we had more time to, to, to look at it today. We will definitely revisit it, but thank you all for your time this morning. And there you have it. The troubling statements made by the last guests of that program. No one wants to take accountability. They want to say, well, the system works. We have protocols in place. What do you tell the people in a Texas prison where 187 people have died? Prisoners. 40 staff members have died. Conditions in the prison were broken toilets, disgusting food, not enough blankets, temperatures dropping. So don't, please spare me that. Everybody wants to say their system is fine. It's not fine. And as those that have been behind the wall, these people are treated like animals. Nobody, it doesn't matter. But everybody has an excuse. Well, we have protocols and we've only had this happen. One life lost because of the failure to act by these institutions, by those that govern them. Something needs to happen. That is a disgrace. 
and these people continue to die. It says here, let me share this story with you. The death of a federal prisoner in Indiana illustrates the incomplete and often misleading nature excuse me, of COVID-19 data released by correctional facilities. Now you have correctional facilities releasing false data to give the perception that they're fine. When Joseph Lee Fultz arrived at the federal prison complex in Terry Hunt, Indiana, in January to begin a 27-year sentence, the prison was fighting to contain COVID-19 outbreak. Positive cases at the sprawling complex, which consists of maximum security prison where death row prisoners are housed, a medium security prison and an um, uh, a, a uh, camp had jumped from fewer than a dozen in early November to more than 400 by the end of December. But according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which posts information about the COVID-19 cases, prisoners Terry Hot were recovering at a rapid clip. In a spreadsheet updated every day, the health status of dozens of inmates were changing from positive to recovered. By January 7, when folks set foot in the facility, only 108 people were listed as having active cases. Everyone else, the BOP said, BOP said, was no longer sick. So how corrupt is that? So let's give the impression that we're doing okay. Like the gentleman that just talked, we're containing, we're doing okay. Four days after his arrival, exactly 14 days later, excuse me, folks tested positive for the virus. 14 days later, the BOP added him to the recovered list. By January 7, when folks set foot in the facility, again, 108 people had died. 14 days after they put this guy on the recovery list, he was dead from COVID. Now, who's going to be responsible for that? This is, again, the misleading action. This is why no one has faith or confidence in a system where you can just play with the numbers. But you're playing with people's lives. David? Yeah, the problem is the prisons aren't set up to do standard medical care, let alone dealing with the pandemic. So uh, the gentleman on the, the sheriff on there was disingenuous. You're not getting standard care in prisons that's worth, uh, that's worth a, a plug nickel. Uh, Nelson Mandela says no one truly knows a nation until one has been inside its jails. He said a nation should not be judged by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest ones. And I think that speaks volumes. The United States built this system of mass incarceration with prison thirsty prosecutors who just feel like everybody needs to be locked up. Other nations have have gone a different way. So the U.S. created this uh, this problem with their mass incarceration. And now they're, they're running around spent trying to spin, spin as if they're uh, as if they're doing something good to contain it. Well, no, your system is not set up to contain anything like that. And the facts are backing that up. Uh, right now, uh, I, we're honored to have our first guest, um, Daniel Moritz Repson, uh, the freelance journalist uh, who is going to give his perspective. Uh, and he actually, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, comes uh, to give his perspective as a journalist, what he has seen in the prison and what they're reporting and what the truth is. The truth is not what we just heard on that clip. That's not the truth. That's a cover-up 
to keep us believing and the families of these inmates to think everything is fine until they go missing and no one can even find them. Because guess what? Nine times out of ten, many of those people are in body bags. That is a disgrace. Uh, Daniel, are you with us? I am. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Daniel, uh, appreciate you joining us. It's, I don't know how long you've, you've, you've been on listening to this show, but a very troubling, um, troubling situation here. Uh, and my question is, as the, variants, uh, the variant comes in connected to COVID, which is much harsher, rapid spreading, but we still have nobody taking accountability to, to save the lives of these inmates. Give me your thoughts, but first introduce yourself to our listeners so they know who you are and where you come from. I am Dan Moritz Radson. I'm based out of New York. Uh, I recently wrapped up some reporting for Al Jazeera on mental health in prisons. And just before that, I reported a piece on how prisons are blocking access and prisons and IRS are blocking access to stimulus checks. Um, in There have been a number of institutional barricades set up so that it's uh, incarcerated people are having a much harder time getting their stimulus checks than anybody else. Um, and of course, right now, that money would be particularly useful as shutdowns mean that regular services are lagging. So there's even less being provided by the state or whatever authority runs the prison. Um, yes. But I, th- I think the thing that that's most concerning now is the, the prioritization of vaccines um, and and large states that aren't offering vaccines to incarcerated people who actually want them. Uh, And so in New York, there was a lawsuit that basically forced the state to begin offering inoculations to people who were 65 and older, but the state didn't start doing that until there was legal action. And so with all these variants spreading, more and more people are likely to get sick and, and prisoners are kind of the last in the line it seems in states like florida and texas so daniel let me ask you a question and this is what it appears to me rather than just release some of these folks many of them are not violent offenders many of them so rather than release and follow the protocol of attorney general Barr when he was when this thing hit a year ago uh, and says look anybody that qualifies for home confinement that's a nonviolent offender get them out and do it immediately is this some type of slap uh in the face of the department of justice say you know what i've heard this before that these prisons and these the county jails they run their own uh type of system are they doing that to keep the numbers high in the institutions why they're not following that we know the vaccine from what we've heard, it's just not a one-shot deal. Uh, it's a progressive thing where they get more. And so you keep these people in vulnerability situations with a shot to the vaccine to give some type of false hope. Well, you're fine now. Go ahead and don't social distance, uh, and which you can in, in, in prison or county jail. What are your thoughts on that type of uh, theory here? Right. And, and so it's not just the dragging from the BOP and actually re- releasing people to home confinement. Um, you know, in, in New York, for example, there were a huge amount of requests for clemency and only 12 people last year got commutation. So even in supposedly liberal states, um, you know, the government's not doing anything to re- or very little to reduce the population 
of prisons, which would both make it safer for, for everybody who's still in the prison, but also get a lot of people out uh, when they don't need to be kept inside in, in such a dangerous situation. And so it's, you know, it's hard to know because there's actually so many different prison systems across the country what uh, the motivation of, of each is, but there's huge bureaucratic structures that are just not moving quickly or showing any sense of urgency as more and more people are getting sick and, and dying. Um, so, you know, whatever the, the core motivation is, it's really heartless, it seems, but that's not at all shocking given that, um, I mean, the, the Trump administration started federal executions after 17 years, and there's there's no better sign of kind of a, the regard for incarcerated population than deciding that you need to kill people in the middle of a pandemic um, and, and focusing your energy oh. there. No, for sure. Dave? Well, one of the things we saw while we were in prison is that there were inmates that qualified for early release, and then they would get these frivolous shots so that all of a sudden, oh, you're not qualified to get released because you just got in trouble. And when I talked to COs, some of the correction officers actually said to me that we don't want anybody to get out because we're worried about our jobs. Did you see that when you were talking to people? So I, my, my most recent reporting was more on, on mental health. But I, I mean, I think there's a, a huge ingrained systematic issue, which is the, the 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 whole justice system or so-called justice system operates to keep people revolving in and out. Uh, and, and you're right to look at the financial elements of it because, um, you know, the, the, the prisons are, are there's a huge amount of financial resources that go into prisons and um, state corrections departments have a huge interest in maintaining the, the funds that they currently have. Um, and, and so, you know, once again, it'll, it'll be rare to get somebody admitting blatantly, yes, we're trying to keep our jobs, but just the very structural elements of, of prison as an industry, um, rather than any sort of rehabilitative system mandates that it keeps functioning as usual and, and self-perpetuates. Okay. David? I got a question for you, uh, Daniel. Um, what do you think, uh, living in the United States, like I said, uh, we witnessed COVID uh, firsthand and how the BOP actually handled it. <clears throat> What's your feeling about uh, the consistent contempt in the United States for the felon, uh, a culture of, of contempt for felons? It seems to be embedded in the U.S. culture. It's also uh, somewhat responsible for mass incarceration, mass incarceration. And there's this, as part of the system, there's this perpetual punishment that takes place in the criminal justice system in America. Uh, even when you get out of prison, how much do you think the, the overall American psyche about the criminal justice system contributes to the way they're handling COVID? Oh, I, I think it's inextricable. I mean, I think they're, they're, intimately connected and just even in terms of the physical locations of, of where prisons are located they're oftentimes in more inaccessible areas um you know they're not in the center of cities so that they can be kept out of mind 
uh, for for most people, and so that they can constantly avoid thinking about them or and at the same time maintain whatever preconceptions they have about who ends up in prisons um, when you know in in a country where you have two point three million people in some form of detention um, you know it's it's you have to look at kind of what the leading causes are and and so just the the way that we in in popular media, mainstream media, and, and kind of TV popular culture discuss incarceration very much shapes the, the, the ways and, and any compassion or lack thereof towards incarcerated people. So I think, you know, the, the heartlessness and, and the refusal to um, release people and, and the thought that it's fine that every incarceration sentence has been turned into a death sentence by coronavirus, and, and that's acceptable is very much an outgrowth of our, our our broader societal structure and the way that we talk about and, and create boundaries about incarceration. No, for sure. And uh, Dane, let me say let me say thank you for uh, your work in least at least in informing uh, the American people and people as a whole that some people just won't stop and look at. Uh, we're forced to stop and look at things. Over the last few years in this country, the criminal justice system has come under extreme scrutiny because of what we have witnessed. When you start talking about COVID and what it's done to the, not only the nation, the world, I'm anxious to know, and I'm not sure if you would know this answer, but we're gonna, definitely going to look into it. How are foreign uh, countries with uh, incarceration people there, what steps have they taken uh, versus what the United States is now being really uh, scrutinized about, that you guys are letting people die over there at, a, at an alarming number and doing nothing. Uh, the system seems to be different, um, whether it's over in Europe. Uh, a lot of things are done different in their system, and our research team is going to look that and find out what they can find. What, what was their response in reference to COVID? I'm anxious to see what that is. Your thoughts, based upon your experience, uh, is there a difference that's really on its face, uh, a clear difference in contrast to what the United States is doing? So I don't know as much about um, how other countries have, have handled prisons um, and incarceration with coronavirus, but I think the sheer number and rate at which we incarcerate people is very telling. Um, and, and that actually relates to broader public health, because there was a study from the Prison Policy Initiative uh, that came out in December, and their analysis found that in mass incarceration led to 500,000 cases just in the summer across the broader population. So that's the way in which jails and prisons have fueled outbreaks elsewhere um, and, and in broader society. And so, you know, it, it, given that prisons have been linked to that and just given the sheer rate of incarceration, um, you know, I think that's the factor to be considering. If prisons are a driving force or even a major factor in coronavirus cases, um, you, you have to question why that is and what we've set up as an existing structure to fuel that. And 
Um, so j just just the sheer amount of people that we have incarcerated and, and kind of the conditions that we're putting them in, the, the lack of any space because of overcrowded prisons, because this is an industry, is leading people to end up in solitary confinement because the only place to, to quarantine them. And so it's all interrelated. No, no, for sure. And, I, and, and that's true, Daniel. The, the number of incarcerated has to speak to the fact the number of COVID. If the, the United States has the most incarcerated population in the world, well, of course, our numbers are going to be a lot higher. But the problem I have is that, uh, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with this story out of Texas, during the, the freeze that just happened there, the, 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 I mean, it was really, really bad. Uh, and it talks about that prisoners, says the deep freeze has been terrible for many Texans, but prisoners have little way to get warm, which means the conditions that these folks are living in will make them more susceptible to the virus because they're getting sick. They're getting the flu. Uh, th their immune system, of course, dropping at a rapid rate. And this is what I was saying earlier. Yes, COVID is an issue, but the culture of the prison system as it is enhances uh, really the, the spread of COVID. If you had conditions better, and but I think, Daniel, the point you made that with things closing down, uh, states closing down uh, due to the COVID, well, that's the production of whatever people need in the prison, whether it's food or warmth or all these things that, that we're dealing with. Um, I, I would say, and I want your thoughts on that, that has to contribute to the increase in COVID cases without question, not because COVID appeared but because of the conditions of these prisons before we ever heard of COVID. And nobody took responsibility to ensure that these people were living in, in humane conditions. Your thoughts on that? Right. And and kind of just, just going back to um, kind of Bill Barr's order directive and uh, the decision not to actually, not to move quickly and, and move people to home confinement. I mean, what the country as a whole has done in regard to incarceration is leave people to get infected. There's no way to social distance. There's no way to stay safe. You have no control if you're locked down in your cell for 23 hours a day. Um, and, and I can only imagine that's incredibly terrifying to, to think that anybody's personal decision in, in the, the rare time that they have to go to the phone or, or take a shower could end up getting you sick and there's really nothing you can do. And even worse, uh, it's, it's the staff bringing, bringing the, the, the virus in. And so, um, you know, just the, the idea that we've left people and we aren't considering all alternatives <clears throat> to driving infections is very telling. No, for sure. Daniel, how much time do you have? Can you come back with us on the other side of the break or is your, t how's your schedule for the rest of the evening? Yeah, I could come back on the other side of the break. Okay, and on the other side of the break, uh, matter of fact, I'm going to go ahead and bring Nicole Porter on. She's going to be joining us, Daniel, in this conversation. Uh, she is Director of Advocacy at the Sentencing Project. I'd like to at least bring her on, take a quick break, and then we're going to get back into this dialogue. Nicole, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, and thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us. I am aware of the schedule, so we're going to definitely we're going to take a quick break, come back, and I'm going to start uh, this dialogue back up with you, your thoughts of what we're talking about tonight. And we are honored to have you on AJC Radio tonight, okay? Great. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. 
having a discussion about those things that are the most difficult to understand, and that is the devaluing, if you will, of human life. As COVID-19 shakes the not only the world, but the prisons and county jails are inexcusable. We're going to deal with that on the other side of the break. This is IJC Radio. We'll be right back. Carrie, she wants to go home, right? Go. Whoa, you okay to drive? Yeah, I'm fine. You sure? Relax. What's a few beers? If you don't stop your friend from drinking and driving, you're as good as dead. Drinking and driving can kill a friendship. Operator 901, where's the emergency? 127, been there. Okay, what's going on there? I'd like to order a pizza for delivery. Ma'am, you've reached 911. This is an emergency yeah, line. Uh, large with half pepperoni, half mushroom. Um, you know you've called 911. This is an emergency line. Do you know how long it'll be? Okay, ma'am, is everything okay over there? Do you have an emergency or not? Yes. And you're unable to talk because... Right, right. Is there someone in the room with you? Just say yes or no. Yes. Okay, um, it looks like I have an officer about a mile from your location. Are there any weapons in your house? No. Can you stay on the phone with me? No. Uh, See you soon. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your patience. Uh, We did receive information, notification that there was an outage uh, in this area, uh, which would cause the technical difficulties that we have had. Uh, So it's not something that was within our control, but outages happen all the time in in different areas and communities. We happen to be, it appears, uh, notification was sent out. We're going to do our very best to finish this show tonight. Hopefully it will remain intact as whatever's being done or worked on uh, by the internet provider uh, will be taken care of. So that's kind of where we're at on it. Again, my sincere apologies for that. Do we still uh, have um, Nicole Porter on the line? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Hello, hello, Nicole. We apologize for that. Hopefully the explanation helps a little bit. I know you're on a limited window, so let's get right into it. Uh, as, and, and hope that uh, this outage goes away quite quickly. Um, I don't know how much of the show you've heard talking about the abuse uh, by the prison officials, state prisons, county jails, federal prisons in regard to COVID-19, and the lack of due diligence, if you will, to help these folks that are suffering very, very bad in their families as a result of a failure to act due to the COVID-19 virus. Give us your thoughts on that. I mean, the um, the developments over almost the last year in the context of COVID just speak to the problems with imprisonment to begin with, the fact that there are too many people in prison, and the, you know, lack of um, effort in actually moving people out of prison, given the pandemic and the risk associated with COVID outbreaks just 
you know, speaks to huge failures in governance and and policy in the United States. So it's been frustrating to observe over the last year, but not surprising. And Nicole, do you see any, you know, relief? A lot of people are really outraged. And, and I appreciate, let me say that, I appreciate the work that you do uh, as an advocate uh, and then at the, at the uh, sentencing project. You seem to have a heart and a passion for these issues where a lot of people are shy away from. What prompted you to get into this line of work? And when you observe these things, is there a silver lining somewhere that we're going to see change? Well, there have been a handful of developments over the last year that sort of speak to modest efforts to respond to the crisis and, you know, address the fact that there are people vulnerable in prison. Um, So in a handful of states like New Jersey and most recently North Carolina, there have been changes that have, um, you know, led to the release of several thousand people. And so those have been steps in the right direction. Um, New Jersey, there was legislation adopted at the end of last year that resulted in the largest single-day relief of folks inside. It was after legislation was passed under emergency order by the New Jersey Assembly and then um, allowed, I believe, over 2,000 individuals to be released from prison in a single day. So that was, you know, that was important. And other states also released people early, you know, vulnerable people who are vulnerable, who are 65 and older, people who, if they get COVID, um, were at risk of suffering from a a fatal course of it and perhaps, you know, a fatal outcome from it. And most most recently, North Carolina... The courts in North Carolina ruled that um, following some litigation that the state prison system had to release people under several categories of discretionary early release, people who are elderly, people who are medically vulnerable in the context of COVID because the state hadn't been doing that. So those are important developments, but, you know, these developments together result in a very modest um, decarceration outcome, and you know, given the fact that over two million people are incarcerated in the United States at the um, federal and the state level, and other countries have released tens of thousands of people in the context of COVID, with the goal of allowing for social distancing in um, prison lockups, and then allowing people to, um, you know, who are medically vulnerable to be released into the free community. And so the United States practices pale in comparison to what other countries have done, like Germany and even more autocratic nations like Indonesia. Um, so, and I'll say, you know, you asked why it's good to have I gotten into this. So I got into this issue, I mean, I'm directly impacted by it. I have a brother who was incarcerated um, several years ago, and his incarceration impacted my family, so that helped politicize me and, um, you know, made me want to address some of these issues. Sure, and let me say this, Nicole, it looks like, uh, looking at uh, over your information, I mean, you are well rehearsed and work with a lot of important people. Uh, you've been 
since you, I guess, began to work at the Sunny Project in 2009. Uh, you were cited in several media outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, National Public Radio. You've given a number of talks uh, on state sentencing policy. You've done quite a bit. Let me ask you a question with those circles in which you find yourself in. Uh, is the outrage or the really concern the same among those that you have talked to as you begin to educate on these type of issues? Are you seeing some type of passion that we must do something? Yes, but I think it's because there are so many people who are touched by imprisonment. And, you know, in addition to the people who are in the jail or prison on any given day, there's tens of thousands of people who've cycled through it or who've been impacted in some way, even if, um, you know, that... Um, that experience was many years ago at this point. So, you know, the number of the number of people in prison pales in comparison to the large number of people who are affected by it in many ways. So, yeah, I would say that there are many people who I've connected to or met with over the years that are incredibly passionate and moved by the underlying problems that contribute to the large number of people who are in prison and jail on any given day and are, you know, very focused and passionate about trying to do something to address it. No, for sure. Nicole, thanks for your work and what you do in, in educating people and all the work that you have done. Uh, you've worked really, really hard uh, from what I can see and, and what uh, your history is. Uh, we need people like you as well as other advocacy organizations that are involved uh, in something of this magnitude. Uh, I think, I don't know if you heard us speak in regards to Texas, uh, that the conditions were so bad in the prisons and county jails out there, uh, they became very easy targets for COVID-19. And they're saying, well, this is COVID, this hit us by surprise. But the conditions at these prisons are so horrific that it's an open door for COVID to walk in and, and get comfortable. Uh, what are your thoughts on the conditions, how people are living with no heat? I mean, th these are inhumane conditions. What are your thoughts on that? You know, what we have observed over the, la over the last year is a failure in, uh, just a failure by any stretch of the imagination. It's, I am from Texas, and it's not surprising to me that the conditions in Texas prisons and jails have resulted in the outcome that you, um, you know, you discussed earlier. Just the level of inequity and um, unfairness that we are witnessing day to day. It's out and open with COVID and, you know, in sort of the uh, conditions that we're hearing about inside of those prisons and jails. But even, you know, pre-pandemic, there were horrific conditions that led to infectious disease outbreaks in, in lockup facilities and other horrific conditions and violent incidents. So this, that is the problem with prison. And it's certainly the problem with the way prison is in the United States and in states like Texas, where overcrowding and the fact that there are too many people in prison and the fact that we send people to prison in the United States for things that they just simply should not be sent to prison for is, is the issue. And that's what we need to continue to center when we talk about mass incarceration and we talk about problems related to COVID is that 
there are people who are in prison today that do not need to be there. And because they are in prison today, um, their imprisonment contributes to overcrowding or just like too many bodies, too many souls in lockup yes. that make people at risk of contracting COVID and a range of other, um, you know, suffering from other problems as well. Oh, no, no, without, without a doubt. Um, and I think, like you said, uh, Nicole, look, the core issue is the problem that has gone ignored for years. Uh, and let me, I th- believe, Daniel, Daniel, you're still on with us? Yes, sir. Daniel, uh, and again, I apologize. We had an outage in this area. We back up. I know you're limited uh, tonight uh, regarding an appointment that you have. Uh, would you like us, we're going to be doing part two of this show next week. We'd love to have you back, but I don't want to leave you and not say thank you and to our listeners for coming on and giving your perspective uh, of what this discussion has been tonight. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Thank you. And we'll be in touch offline for next week's show. Okay. Great. Thank you. Okay. Nicole, and the clock is ticking because of the outage as well. How much time do you have left? You can stay with us. Um, I could probably give you another 10 to 15 minutes. I understand. Where are you located at, actually? What? Uh, we're, in, we're in Colorado Springs. Oh, okay. Colorado. Yeah. Yes. So you, so was that the town that the mayor um, posted that horrible Facebook post on? Saying uh, that people the- need to fend for them, saying that people need to fend for themselves? When the outage, when the electricity, when the electricity went out. Oh, I believe freeze. that. Was, I, I think that was. Oh, that I believe that was Texas. I believe that. Oh, was Texas. you're not in Colorado Springs, Texas. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry. You know what? Hey, I, uh, David Banks just sent me the clue. Colorado Springs, Colorado. I didn't know there was another Colorado Springs uh, as a yeah, city in another is. state. <laughs> so my apologies mm. on that. Um, we're going to take a quick okay. break, Nicole. We're going to c- come back. Uh, have some more discussion. There is a clip I'd like you to hear. I want to get your thoughts on it. Some of our other hosts around the table would like to ask you a couple of questions, and we're going to definitely be respectful of your time, okay? Sure. Okay, we'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, AJC Radio, dealing with a troubling issue regarding COVID-19, the pandemic, and the things that could have been done prior to the pandemic could have saved some lives. We're going to finish that discussion with our very special guest, Nicole Porter, Director of Advocacy at the Sentencing Project, and she has a lot to say. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. My nephew Joshua was 13 when he was killed in 2001. Was living with me at the time. He asked me, can I go by Billy's house? I thought, well, you know, what's the harm in that? You know, my mistake was I assumed that there was a parent home. I assumed his father had his weapon properly secured. The kid had removed the magazine, so the kid was sure that the gun was safe. And he, what he didn't know was there was a bullet chamber. Joshua had this fear of weapons because he lost his mother to gun violence. 
I think this kid really pulled the trigger to show Joshua that that it was not dangerous. The hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life is to tell my mom we have to bury her grandson. The pain was so great, we just wanted to do something positive and we also wanted to try to prevent families from experiencing the same pain that this put my family through. We've been working with the Den Family Fire campaign. Family Fire is the accidental shooting of a family member with a weapon that was improperly secured, improperly stored. It's a difficult conversation for people. You don't want to ask or say anything to your neighbors because you don't want to offend them. But there are important things we should know. Where are they going when they play? <laughs> what is the environment of that home? We have to understand that children are inquisitive. They're curious. And there's not one corner of the house that they haven't gone through. If you're a gun owner, you have to make sure your weapon is inaccessible. It will save the family from the pain and the trauma that my family is put through. Because once that happens, it's forever. And if I could prevent one family from experiencing that, then his life will have some purpose. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. 
We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, where we are discussing the cruel and unusual punishment, is what I call it, with the handling of COVID-19 in America's prisons, county jails, detention centers. Uh, This is an outrage at its highest level that people are giving a status uh, quo, if you will, or status check when it comes to the lives of human beings. Uh, the folks that have suffered the loss, the families that have suffered loss, the painful part of that is this. It was unnecessary. Planning could have easily been done, and conditions at these prisons should have been at such a level that when the pandemic hit, prisons and jails were in position to do what needs to be done. Someone needs to be held accountable for that. Uh, I'm very happy to bring back uh, uh, Nicole Porter, Director of Advocacy of the Citizen Project, uh, who's joined us tonight to give her perspective on some of these issues. And Nicole, are you back with us? I'm here. Thank you so much. Can you uh, hear me? I'm going to play this. Uh-huh. Yes, I can hear you. Um, I'm going to play this clip for you, Nicole, to get your thoughts. And uh, a couple of our co-hosts have a couple of questions for you as we are respectful of your time. Uh, to, to, to let you get on your way and after joining us on the show. We really, really appreciate it. Let's play the clip. I'm going to get your thoughts on it. Let's go. While most of us are practicing social distancing to try to keep healthy, staying apart can be nearly impossible for more than 2 million inmates in prisons and jails across the country. Over 2,600 inmates and almost 3,000 staff members of prisons and jails nationwide have now contracted COVID-19, according to researchers at UCLA. The concern is those working inside these facilities could spread it on the outside. ABC's Alex Perez has this look at the coronavirus from behind bars. While the outside world urges residents to stay home and practice social distancing, the inside world of overpopulated prison systems across the country struggling to stem the spread of COVID-19 among inmates and staff. At Chicago's Cook County Jail, more than 300 inmates have been diagnosed with COVID-19. At least three have already died. Inmates posting this sign on a cell, help, we matter too. This is a dormitory. Using contraband cell phones, inmates pleading for help in Alabama. Help for the overcrowding, help for sanitary uh, purposes. At a Kansas prison, inmates smashed offices and set fires, taking over an entire cell block for hours until staff used tear gas. The state now investigating. We're at LCL. This is what happens 
And in Louisiana, the ACLU has filed a lawsuit for the release of hundreds of vulnerable prisoners after at least six died there. Marianne Lemka worries about her fiancé, Daniel Rodriguez. He served six years of his eight-year sentence in Connecticut. He has parole coming up no matter what, and I've reached out to the governor. I've reached out to the commissioner of corrections. Her biggest fear? That he could be infected. I believe there's four levels. He's on the third level, one being the lowest. So our conditions that he has already gives him palpitation. In legal filings responding to an ACLU lawsuit, state officials wrote that Rodriguez is, quote, not medically eligible for release despite a heart condition. The outbreak behind bars, critics say, further complicated by unsanitary conditions, restricted access to soap and water, and the fact that social distancing in prisons and jails is often impossible. The aisle is too small. It is way, way too small. Here at Cook County and at prisons and jails across the country, they have already released thousands of low-level, non-violent inmates to help ease overcrowding. They're also now separating inmates, quarantining those that test positive and show symptoms, hoping to slow down the spread of the virus inside and outside. Alex Perez, ABC News, Chicago. Well, there you have it. And Nicole, I wanted you to hear that clip uh, because of the ACLU's involvement. She also said that you were the director of the Texas ACLU's Prison and Jail Accountability Project. Now, when you hear these things, according to that report, you got a guy who is qualified to walk out of prison. He's up for parole, but he's at the third level of COVID and at risk. What are your thoughts on that? How do we handle that? I mean, one thing is, is that that clip implied that people inside pose a risk of um, spreading COVID to people on the outside. And I would say that why there are outbreaks inside of jails and prisons is because the staff and other contractors brought COVID in to the lockup facilities. And, you know, jails are a different story, but certainly that's the way COVID outbreaks happened in prisons. And there's documentation in California where the uh, state prison system transferred people um, from one prison to San Quentin, leading to a, a significant outbreak in that lockup facility. Um, and people in again, there are bigger issues. Obviously, there's life and well-being, and um, trying to prevent people from contracting a potentially deadly virus, and um, you know, supporting people's health and ability to stay healthy. There's also the question of liberty, right? Imprisonment yeah. is uh, takes away someone's liberty, and certainly using the pretext of a public health crisis as a reason to um, continue to lock someone up is unacceptable and inhumane and speaks to the lack of um, fairness. You know, it's so much even more than that. That's not even really an adequate, doesn't really capture the spirit of what's at risk when uh, public health crises are used as a pretext to keep someone locked up. Um, but no. 
you know, that should never be the case. And that is clearly happening um, in the context of the pandemic. For sure. And Nicole, I'm clear on what you're saying is that uh, the problem was here far before COVID-19. And that would be the mass incarceration and and taking a person's liberty when they really didn't have to. uh, They're locking people up for no criminal reason in many cases that uh, there's an abuse of the system in the fact that we are overcrowded in our prisons. Uh, We have people being uh, treated poorly from the beginning of the legal process. And so because until we fix that problem, we're never going to be prepared for a pandemic because the problem, the core of the problem, is, is if, I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, goes far beyond, the, beyond COVID. Is that right? Yes. I mean, there will be infectious disease outbreaks even after COVID. There's been, you know, t- you know tuberculosis outbreaks, Legionnaire's disease outbreaks, all of lockup facilities because the conditions that contribute to COVID outbreaks are there and have been there even, you know, before COVID-19 was known. Um, you know, and there's been, you know, so many, so many documentation of that in prison systems across the country. There was a tuberculosis outbreak in um, a Georgia prison a few years ago. Um, you know, there's just, there's a risk of infectious disease and communicable diseases spreading inside of lockup facilities because of the close quarters that people are subjected yeah. to. Understood. Understood. Yeah. Listen, listen, Nicole, I'm gonna, I, I want to be very respectful of your time. Uh, David has a comedy he's going to make towards you. I'm going to let you give your closing statement here so we can hopefully look for a better day. Uh, I think your perspective to it, I believe, is important. Get to the core of the problem and begin to deal with the criminal justice system problem that we have in this country, which is contributing consistently, not only to COVID, but other outbreaks that are going to happen, we need to take a look at the entire system. And I hear you loud and clear. I'm sure our listeners do as well. David, go ahead. Hey, Nicole, thank you so much. Uh, you've, uh, uh, your commentary has been very enlightening. Um, and I, 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 I just find, uh, as you said, the, the problems, uh, the root cause of, of the system, and, and I'm, I'm struck by the Constitution, Eighth Amendment, which has a prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. I think the and in there uh, strikes me as somewhat uh, nefarious that that even in the Constitution we've accepted cruel, that, that, that prisons can, can treat people in a very cruel fashion, and the courts even, their standard, well, if it's not unusually cruel, um, we don't, we're not really concerned about it. So I think it, it's even deeper than, than people can realize uh, that is actually embedded in the Constitution that, yeah, you can be cruel to prisoners, which seems to be uh, the psyche of most of the American public. They don't really know how to pull out of what's unusually cruel. Obviously, COVID is something that's unusually uh, cruel. And, and, and have you ever thought uh, something about that and, and the Constitution and just how it... Uh, promotes cruelty? Yes. I mean, there, there, um, the Supreme Court has ruled that it is constitutional to sentence people to excessive sentences, life imprisonment, and that those are legitimate sentences, um, no matter what the underlying cause is, but because the legislature has determined that those are valid sentences, that it's legitimate, just like the, 
the Supreme Court currently sanctions death and executing people. So certainly the Supreme Court um, has used the Constitution, has upheld the Constitution to reinforce cruelness and, um, you know, inhumanity in this country. Well, thank you so much. I'd also be interested at some time to uh, look at your master thesis on self-employment, if we could. Mm -hmm. That's something something we were uh, entrepreneurs before we suffered a wrongful conviction in the software area. And I just uh, uh, be something I'd be very interested in in reviewing uh, if you're so inclined. Absolutely. Yes, you can definitely find that resource and happy to discuss it as well. Fantastic. Thank thank you so much uh, for your input today. And thank you, thank Nicole. You for we appreciate me. it. Hey, listen, Nicole, we're going to be on touch. I want you to know you have a platform here at AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization. Anything we can do to promote what you're doing, uh, we're more than happy to do that. And to David's, David's request, uh, we'll definitely be in touch with you offline. Again, your resume speaks volumes. Uh, and uh, we look forward to having further dialogue with you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Have a good evening. You too. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Nicole Porter, uh, a lot of insight into the system, and and that's that's an issue we got to deal with. Uh, What is the core problem? What is the core foundation in which these types of behaviors have brought us to this point during a dangerous and deadly pandemic. And that is a good point to be made because had we, for years, they've been crying prison reform, prison reform, decency, overcrowding, mass incarceration. Now you see the results of that type of action. You see the results in the time of crisis. It becomes far worse because we have ignored it too long. Kendra, go ahead. And I just think Nicole made a real good observation that they're always, as a way to justify how they're acting, is to say, well, there's this intrinsic danger to the public from these inmates and contracting COVID-19. But just by the nature of being uh, incarcerated, you're already in quarantine. So there was no way for you to just contract uh, COVID-19 unless it was brought into the prison from the, uh, from the staff. So you're not really caring about so it's you're not caring about their safety. They could have prevented a lot of this by reducing not only just by reducing the population, but by making sure that hey, you know what, let's take safety protocols so that the staff isn't uh, you know uh, infecting you know the inmates. But then when they when there is an outbreak, you blame the inmates. You don't blame that you didn't ha- you weren't ready. You didn't put proper standards or protocols in place. You say, well, you, you've got COVID-19. Now we have to protect the outside world from you as if it started inside of prisons and jails in this country. That's, to me, I, I, I liked your observation because they're looking at it the wrong way. If you don't look at it truthfully, you're never going to find a, a solution, a true solution. Well, you had 187 inmates dead in Texas from COVID uh, in one Texas prison, and you had 87 or 89 staffers dead from COVID. Uh, William, you had some numbers. We were talking earlier in regards to the uh, what are the uh, the, uh, the foreign countries doing who have suffered 
this is a worldwide reach of the pandemic. Right, right. You gave us a staggering number, I believe it was for France. Yes, yes. So basically we were talking about, and Nicole had brought up as well, she was talking about regionally and state by state how the prisons were responding to our lack of response. So here it says since March, 14,000 inmates, and this is for France, have been early released in order to avoid the spread of COVID. 14,000. But what they're realizing here as well, I looked at France, the UK, and Italy, and Spain. They looked at the point that Kendrick just brought up. There, Not only are we seeing an increase in the inmates, but there's even more in the staff infected. infected. And also here, there's they actually recorded stats where there have been staff that have committed suicide and inmates that have committed suicide as a result of the as a result as a result of COVID. You've also seen here where now, if you remember early in in I think it was the spring of last year, mm-hmm. Italy Italy was was really rabid, bad. was really bad. They've actually now not only have they reduced their they reduced their inmate population, but they've also reduced the pretrial detention. So they're saying they have a 13% decrease in the pretrial t- detention of, of, of um, I, don't know, I guess, those that are being ready arrested, for, prepared for trial. Rest. Yes, I wanted to say that correctly, but thank you for that. Yeah. So when you think about that, it's a reduction of, you know, the people that are in the facilities. And then they also said they are bringing, uh, allowing family visitation. And it's a, a facility by facility, but they're allowing now the inmates to have the family's visits. Demetrius. Yeah, uh, Mont, we, uh, I think yeah, you had mentioned earlier just in talking how the problem we have at El Paso County, same thing pretrial. They, have not, they haven't been convicted, but yet you're housing, and they brought it up to the uh, El Paso County Sheriff. Why are you doing, you have these, these uh, innovative ways that other countries are doing, but yet America fails time and time again in regards as you mentioned, to prison reform on doing it in a better way to keep not only the inmates safe, but the public safe. And keeping someone in pretrial locked up is not the answer. And I just find that, as as Ken mentioned earlier, um, her thoughts on that and how we need to do a a better job on that. Well, I think the problem here, this is why people have lost faith in the system. A man is supposedly presumed innocent until convicted, found guilty, beyond a reasonable doubt, until he is convicted, and innocent people pass through there and get convicted. How do you have somebody who's been accused of a crime, stuck in county jail, and cannot make bail? That is, that is a systematic problem. So he hasn't been convicted, it hasn't been proven, an accusation has been made. They... Uh, go to prison, go to county jail rather, waiting for their day in court. And because they are not prepared, many of them will not see the courtroom, but they'll see a body bag. How much sense does that make? And yet you, you want the American people to believe we have the greatest system. That is a bunch of garbage. Dennis had a story uh, article, Dennis, you were, you were referencing in regards to a young lady who was sentenced to two years. Was that in prison or county jail? Well, uh, originally she started off in uh, just the jail system itself, and then they moved her to the federal prison. So she had a two-year sentence? A two-year sentence. 
tell the folks what happened when she when they moved her to the federal prison. Uh, of course, she she was she was uh, in, she had a, she was pregnant. Uh, she was getting ready to have a baby. After she had the baby, within 30 days, because she had COVID, within 30 days she died. So her two-year sentence went to a death sentence. Unacceptable. It's unacceptable. They have what they have, what they call the state system, a turnaround. That your sentence can be so short. This is outside of a pandemic. That your sentence can be so short, by the time you get to processing, a bus turns around and takes you back to county for release. Because most people do not. So if that's a two-year sentence, we already know no one died as a result of that. We already know it's not a killing or a murder. Say two-year sentence, I believe it was a drug case. She lost her life. Because there's no order in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. There is no leadership there. Otherwise, these things would not happen. And the BOP has been under extreme scrutiny, which they should be. For the family members that said, "My, you know, at two years, at a two-year sentence, you, you're making plans of what you're going to do when you get out. Get your life together. Maybe you made some bad choices. Maybe you made some mistakes. In two years, I plan on turning that around. In this case, she gives birth to her baby, and in 30 days, she's dead. Someone must be held accountable for that. Dave, go ahead. When you look at what's been happening in the prison system, you have, remember, we talked about it, that the people from the outside are bringing this in. Well, when we were at the Florence uh, camp, I watched that they're supposed to be checking the guards when they came in. They didn't. They're supposed to be checking the workers when they came in. They didn't always do it. And I worked uh, in the human resources area, and there were times that I would go in there. Now, all the inmates are required to wear their mask. Nobody in human resources was wearing a mask. Now, I didn't care, but here's an opportunity for the virus to get into the camp. You and it, you see this over and over again, where you have the USP, the ADX, there were COVID cases in the ADX. The only way that's coming into the ADX is with the guards. Now, if you're checking the guards when they're coming through the gate, how is this coming in? No, without question. It's unacceptable. Uh, Samson, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I was actually just um, going over an article from the, the research team, and it says here that Iran released 85 thousand inmates in total so far out of a population of only 82.9 million people 85,000 people they've released because of how what the pandemic is doing to their people let them out of prison now now take the overarching world view of what iran is they view they view them as a terrorist state they view them as i mean completely in a negative light for the most part especially from the american perspective but now here they are realizing you know, yeah, they may have, you know, people incarcerated and stuff like that, but realizing also that they are human beings and they are letting them go versus a meager fourteen to 16,000 that we in the United States, supposedly the, the best country in the world are doing. It's unacceptable. Well, absolutely unacceptable. It's just one of those things that, look, you can look the other way. Life is going to bring you to a point in society, in crisis, where it's going to be proven whether you are prepared or not. We are not prepared. 
and we have not been prepared. We've had other pandemics. Uh, as the gentleman was, the H1N1, we had that. How many pandemics have to come before we learn and say we cannot be found here again? The reason is you have a built-in culture of, dis- of disgrace. That's what you have. A culture of inhumane treatment of people who have been accused of a crime, let alone convicted. You want to know what the core problem is? America has lost her way to decency, to human, human, humanity, to be, to, to be just human, that we do not treat our citizens this way. The, the treatment that we're seeing with COVID, we don't see that, Dennis, as you've been ex-military, we don't see that pr- with prisoners of war. It's true. I mean, there's a, there's a guideline that you must are supposed to follow. Yes. Is, am I correct on that? Yes, you have to provide. I mean, you have to give them health care. You have to provide suitable living conditions. You have to feed them. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, and if you don't do this, then you're going against the Geneva Convention in which every country came together and said, we agree. So it, it just, it, 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 when we treat our, our when we, we treat our prisoner of war better than prisoners in the United States citizens, we got a problem. Which, by the way, many are innocent. Exactly. Haven't they, even been accused yet. They haven't been convicted. I agree. Some convicted are innocent. You're dealing with a, a system that is frail at best because you're dealing with a dictator type attitude in the criminal justice system. That's what it is. Say what you want to say about it. This type of treatment is inhumane, but we want to, we want to uh, act as if we can point fingers at everybody else. Well, I haven't seen the United States release 14,000 inmates due to COVID seen that. It's a disgrace. We're going to play this clip, folks. We're going to come back and get uh, our host uh, at the table. Their thoughts on this clip, the problems uh, during lockdown with COVID-19 in America's prison. Let's play the clip. As soon as COVID hit, everything stopped. Um, All of the lads were... um, locked in their cells for a maximum of 23 and a half hours a day. The, the, the young men were behind their doors for a serious amount of time. Covid had a massive impact. Probably 75% of the prisons were out daily, um, going to education, um, doing their uh, general work on the wings. Covid wasn't here, the HMP ISIS, it was brought in from another jail and we were able to contain that uh, very, very quickly. So this is Thames House Block, this is one of our house blocks at the moment. We have um, offices and classrooms up on each landing. Uh, this is our main hub office and that is where the... Uh the whole of the house block is managed by that house, the, the hub. This is cleaned religiously throughout the day. And we've got four spurs. Uh, that G wing, our G spur, is our induction wing. F wing is our enhanced wing, and so that's all our um, higher level prisoners and generally the less challenging boys. 
Originally, uh, right at the very start, it was visits. Visits were our priority. Uh, the men had been in uh, lockdown for quite a considerable amount of weeks, knowing that they couldn't have any contact with their family, and we delivered that, and that's been up and running since the 3rd of August. Um, it's been very successful, although minimal amounts of visitors, because it is through the week and we're unable to deliver that at weekends. Pre-COVID, we had a maximum of up to 40 prisoners were allowed on each visit and they were allowed up to three uh, visitors with children, two children as well. Uh, Covid struck, visits stopped um, and then when we reintroduced visits we had to measure the whole area out for our social distancing um, which enabled us to uh, reduce the capacity to 18 prisoners that are allowed to have a maximum of three visitors per prisoner. So it's very difficult for young children to understand that it's a completely contact-free visit. Um, they're unable to have any sort of contact whatsoever with the, uh, their visitors. Um, so that can be extremely hard for, for the families visiting. We've just managed to open the indoor gym where they're able to use weights um, and uh, indoor racket sports and stuff. It's massive, it has a great impact on their mental health um, and literally just about their attitude. They have an hour and 40 minutes to do social and domestics. So they come out for showers, use the biometrics, um, speak to their uh, other friends on the wing and then they have an hour out in the open air which is exercise and then they get the opportunity to also come to the gym uh, one session per week. Uh, we have had to take some stuff out of the gym, some equipment, so to make it social distancing. Um, and the reason that we are able to have this amount in the gym at one time is they are one cohort so they they are one little bubble for so to speak we maintain and insist on the two meter distancing everywhere around the jail we've got hand sanitizers we've got wash basins um, all of the prisoners are given soap in their cells and um, you know they have access to um, the hand sanitizers when they go on and off the house blocks and in any other area that they move to. We've put a lot of processes in place to ensure that we remain infection free um, and so far, you know, we, we've maintained that and we've been very lucky. And there you have it, uh, a little bit different. Uh, when you hear that, uh, again, the, this appears to be a situation where huge efforts were made here to ensure uh, that COVID did not take possession, so to speak. Uh, the, the issue with that to me is these steps, no doubt, the conditions of the prison, we've done a show on this before. The conditions of the incarcerated of European prisons are drastically different night and day. And you can hear the concern and the care from who, the young lady talking on that clip that they're doing their best. They got the folks here at REC. Uh, they made some provisions so people can work out, stay, stay social distance. I know you had a point you wanted to make, but I wanted to get your thoughts on that real quick. Yeah, you, you listened to her speak in that clip and the whole vocabulary of how she talks about it, about the family's not able to have contact. She's concerned about that. She realizes that little kids find that very difficult to understand. I can't hug daddy, you know. Uh, so the whole vocabulary and, 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 and the words that she's using to even describe the conditions cleaned religiously, right? Yes. I mean, 
all of these ideas of how you take care of the sanitation and humane treatment of human beings uh, is taken into the height of consideration. In America, we have a perverse incentive to, to allow prisoners to do what they do. We give them money to have conditions of squalor. We give them uh, so much per head to, to keep the overcrowding in the prison. Keep the overcrowding, that means money. You, you 200%, well, that means you got double the money that you would otherwise have if you was 100% for what the facility was actually built for. So you don't want to let anybody go home because it means reduction in staff, reduction in inmates. Money is walking out the door. So there's a perverse incentive in America, even the mentally ill. Why do you imprison them? Because it means money. So what you're dealing with here is big business. That's and it. That's it. Look, you're worried about keeping bodies on racks in the prison system. But you're not concerned about the bodies in body bags going out. Right. That is as sick as it gets. And that accountability in states lays at the governor's feet. The governor's feet. He oversees the Department of Corrections for each state. Where is the governor? For every state that has suffered this type of death and carelessness, it's at the feet of the governor because he has the power to change it at any given time. The executive director of the Department of Corrections answers to the governor. I haven't heard any of that on any report on any news station regarding the death of prison inmates. County jail, it stops at the feet of the sheriff. Why have they not been arrested and charged? We would be. We would be. So, again, we have created this culture. As a society and as America, we have created this culture of disgrace. Samson, your thoughts that you have heard all of this tonight, uh, it's very troubling. Your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is, Mont. I mean, to, to Clint's point, too, I mean, you could hear the, her actual, like, she took it personally that the inmates were locked up for 23 and a half hours a day. So they, they took immediate action versus now we have, you know, again, like you said, governors, like I was reading an article about the governor of Vermont, a third of the population of one prison there over the course of a month became, you know, infected to include, you know, uh, people that were incarcerated there and staff. And he still did nothing, absolutely nothing. There was no concern for anybody there. So we as a society, especially here in the United States, because we can tell our European neighbors are taking leaps and bounds farther than what we're doing. We as a society need to get our mind wrapped around the fact that it doesn't matter if you've been accused. It doesn't matter if you've been convicted. It doesn't devalue you as a person. You are still an individual. And we need to wrap our minds around that and still take care of one another, regardless of whether you're behind bars or outside, outside of prison walls. No, without question, Samson. And look, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be dealing with part two. Listen, there's no way with the devastation of this uh, pandemic. But let me go further. Next week, we're going to deal with what are the conditions of these facilities who are now saying, help us. What were the conditions before COVID hit? How many arguments were made? How many complaints were filed by the ACLU 
by human rights advocates saying, look, this is inhumane. We need to do something year after year after year. And they go ignored. The courts don't even take time to look at it. Let's deal with the where is the core that helped the pandemic take the lives that it took in America's prison. We're going to deal with that next Thursday, part two of this series. COVID running rampant in a nation very unprepared. And the, the critical part of that, not even concerned. And to Nicole's point, let me say this, a very special thank to Nicole Porter, uh, Daniel Rapson, perfect perception. Having a conversation. But this goes beyond conversation. This goes to the heart of a human, of the human race. And while governors all over the United States walk into their governor's mansion and lay down at night and can sleep when your state is filling body bags at an alarming rate, it is a disgrace. And to the BOP and to members of Congress that have failed to hold the Bureau of Prisons accountable, it's a disgrace. Part two next Thursday, ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. Signing off, COVID-19, Rexonation. We'll see you next time. This is AJC Radio. COVID-19 is sweeping through the country's jails and prisons. They have proven to be a breeding ground for contagion with tight quarters that don't allow room for social distancing, for shortages of cleaning supplies and lack of protective gear like masks. Some prison systems and jails have been releasing inmates early to free up space, but people we spoke to inside say it is too little, too late. Tonight, we are launching a new series of reports on criminal justice reform. We are calling it Searching for Justice. In a moment, William Brangham will talk with the former medical director of New York's prisons. But first, Yamiche Alcindor brings us some voices from prisoners and their families. There have been dozens of cases of COVID-19 inside the District of Columbia jail. He tells me that people catch it like it's water. The situation became so dire that in April, a federal judge ordered an emergency overhaul of the jail's health measures. Sakethius Daly's partner, William Cox, is being held in the D.C. jail on a weapons possessions charge. People have corona instead of them, um, like, you know, sending people home or, you know, sending people to the doctors. All they're doing is quarantining them in the cell for 20, you know, for a long period of time. And that's not safe because... The stills are, are dirty. People have died from it in the same units, in the same floors that he's on. He feel like that it's um, easy for him to get it. Right now, more than 2 million Americans are sitting behind bars as the coronavirus outbreak deepens. Many prison systems have ended in-person visiting for loved ones. Inmates say there's little they can do to avoid catching the virus. Brian Acey is serving a life sentence for kidnapping and rape at San Quentin State Prison. He now directs a media outlet there run by inmates. It's not really built for a feet distance because it's, it's too compassionate. When they let us out to eat dinner, we still have to stand in line to get our food. And it's still, there's no way we can keep the six, the six feet. If you have symptoms or anything, it's, it's like they punish you because they put you in a hole to, to quarantine you away from everybody. So if a person is sick, they're going to try to keep it away from them because nobody wants to go to the hole. If something happens, 
There's nothing that they can do because it's so crowded. California's prison system says they're making use of vacant space to keep inmates six feet apart. You may start the conversation now. One inmate who preferred not to use his full name described the conditions inside the Missouri prison where he's serving time for murder. Well, we have masks. They just gave us something that they can call a mask, but the staff are not required to wear masks at this time. We keep trying to reason with them, well, we need the staff to wear it because uh, they're the only ones that can bring it in here. We don't get cleaning chemicals for ourselves. If you can afford Ajax, the only thing you clean your field with is Ajax. My main concern is the ventilation system because uh, they don't have no air blowing out. I cough in my cell, and if it's germs in it, it can go to the next cell or whatever. We all hooked up together. If one person get it, we all got it. Cami Maturin runs a nonprofit that works with incarcerated people in Louisiana, including her fiance, Savora Sutton, who is serving a life sentence for second degree murder. He has been there for, this is his 29th year. I believe that he had the coronavirus back in March because he had all the symptoms. He had the sinus, the cough, the congestion, he had fever. She worries prison authorities are resigned to COVID deaths. When you hear that they've accepted 2,500 body bags and you get a will and testament from your loved one, that is, that, that's, uh, uh, knocks the wind out of you. Because I, I did receive a will um, via email, so did a, a couple of other people. Meanwhile, inmates and their families can do little but wait and hope the virus doesn't find them behind bars. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Yamichelle Sendor. To help us better understand how and why this virus is hitting prisons and jails so hard, I am joined now by Dr. Homer Venters. He's the former chief medical officer of the New York City jail system, and he's the author of Life and Death in Rikers Island. Dr. Venters, thank you very much for being here. Uh, we heard a lot of concerns in that tape piece by Yamichel Sindor about conditions inside the prison. We've heard that there's a lot of outbreaks in there. This may seem very obvious to you, but can you just tell us a little bit more about why jails and prisons are such great vehicles for spreading the virus? Certainly, and uh, thank you for having me and, and focusing on this important topic. Uh, jails and prisons and ICE detention centers they're really created uh, physically in a manner that promotes the spread of communicable disease. And COVID-19, we know, is very easily spread from people, one person to another. And so the close contact that people are in when they're detained, when they're in housing areas, or other parts of these facilities, really promotes the spread between both the people who are detained and staff. But two other very important aspects are that the way they're run, these facilities, the way there's a high tolerance for squalor, for filth, uh, where the idea of infection control is really antithetical to what you see inside these places with trash and garbage and lack of attention to keeping the places clean. Uh, the operational standards in these places really promote the spread of this disease. And then finally, because we've kept all of our evidence-based health structures and organizations outside of these walls for decades, places like the CDC, State Departments of Health, uh, CMS and the Joint Commission, things that help us have evidence-based practices in the community, those groups are generally AWOL when it comes to health practices and transparency behind bars. And so we find that 
implementing uh, evidence-based practices in an emergency like this is very hard to do when we haven't tried to do that uh, before the emergency started. Knowing who is sick and who is not inside the prison walls is obviously enormously important. That comes back to testing. What can you tell us about the landscape of testing? Is it being done? Is it being done enough in jails and prisons around the country? No, it certainly is not being done enough. There are many places that continue to have um, scores of people reporting uh, that they are short of breath or even people that have objective fevers that are not being tested. So there is not enough testing. But you know, your point is a really critical one, which is that these places already have broken systems uh, for people who are sick to access any kind of health service. So something that's called sick call in most of these places where somebody uh, writes down on a piece of paper, my stomach hurts, my head hurts, I can't breathe. Uh, many places that I've investigated, uh, those uh, complaints of real medical problems go completely unanswered. So that's the landscape, that's the baseline. And then you, you put in COVID-19 where all of a sudden scores of people in these places have new health problems. Um, and there are broken systems at play Certainly, the lack of testing notes is an important part of this because when you see, for instance, uh, cases among staff going up, 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 but you see no testing or no positive cases among detained people, you have to wonder what's going on. It's probably not that no, no, nobody who's detained actually has the virus. We've certainly seen certain jails and prison facilities releasing prisoners to try to free up more space. We saw Donald Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, released because he's an older person. How, how important is releasing prisoners to free up space as far as preventing the spread inside these facilities? It's a critical tool, and it's, it's one that's being used effectively in, in many areas, but not enough. Uh, it's a critical tool because it allows us to get some of the most vulnerable people out of detention settings, people we know are at high risk for actually dying if they contract COVID-19. It's a critical tool, uh, as you mentioned, because it helps us manage the outbreak inside for everybody who's still there so we can spread people out, uh, keep people in appropriate uh, housing areas and a safe, safer distance from each other. But it's also a critical tool because it helps us prevent local hospital systems from becoming overwhelmed. Uh, when the virus runs like wildfire through these facilities, uh, just in the space of a day or two, it can overwhelm a local hospital. And particularly for rural counties, where we have fewer and fewer hospitals because of hospital closures, but we have lots and lots of county jails, state and federal prisons, and ICE detention centers. Uh, when this virus takes hold in crowded facilities, it, it can completely overwhelm the sole uh, hospital that might be serving one or two counties uh, in the space of a day or two. All right, Dr. Homer Ventures, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.